Beginning in John 13 and continuing to the end of chapter 16, Jesus has been sharing some parting words with his disciples. This conversation that initially began around a Passover table continued as Jesus and his disciples leave the upper room and make their way, working east through the city of Jerusalem. Once Jesus has completed his final exhortation, these parting words, he takes a moment and he tenderly prays, not just for himself and not just for the 11 disciples that were with him, but he takes a moment and he prays for all of the believers that would follow. How cool is it to think that Jesus, the night he would be betrayed and arrested, was praying for you and for me. This prayer you weren't with us last Sunday, is recorded in John 17. You can go back, review it on your own. We're going to pick things up where we left off, beginning with John 18, verse 1. We're told that when Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Again, likely exiting the city from the west through what was known as the East Gate, John, he recalls how Jesus and the disciples cross over the brook Kidron and enter a garden. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that this garden was specifically the Garden of Gethsemane, which was located at the base of the Mount of Olives. This very garden is still in existence today. You can go visit it. There are olive trees that date some 2,000 years back to the time of Christ. Today, the brook Kidron is known simply as the Kidron Valley. Though the riverbed is currently dry, in Jesus' day, it was a brook. Now a valley was a brook. It had a stream of water that flowed through the basin. In fact, aqueducts had been built to divert water into the temple, and then out into this particular brook because it was located on the eastern side of the city in close proximity to the temple. The reason for this particular design had a direct relation to this feast, the Feast of Passover, and more specifically, the incredible number of lambs that would be sacrificed this week. With more than 200,000 lambs being slaughtered by the priests to atone for sin in the temple. The water from these aqueducts would flow into the temple, would wash the blood out into this valley, flowing away from the city. Now, as Jesus and the disciples are making their way from the temple, and they're crossing the brook Kidron, by this point, this little river... It's a torrent, not just of water, but it's a torrent of blood from the sacrifices. It's a river of blood. Case in point, the word kidron literally means black. And it's a descriptive term from the staining process of the blood in the underlying limestone that was part of the city. Now imagine the sight of so much blood. 200,000 plus lambs being slaughtered in just a two-day period. Just the manpower to do that, but the massive amount of blood 
flowing through the Kidron Valley this evening. Not only that, but imagine as you're trying to just picture the scene, the sound of the massacre. Imagine the smell. It would have been terrible. You know, the process of offering a sacrifice for sin, as illustrated by just the sight of the Kidron, tells us that our sin, to atone for that sin, it was a filthy, grotesque business. In the Garden of Gethsemane, John adds that Jesus often met there with his disciples. In fact, according to Luke's Gospel, we're told that Jesus came not just to the Garden of Gethsemane, but he came to the place, the definite article. It was a place. Apparently, within the Garden of Gethsemane, there was this one spot that Jesus loved to visit, to spend time there. I've mentioned this before, but any time that Jesus came to Jerusalem, he didn't lodge in the city. Instead, he lodged in a suburb known as Bethany at the home of some friends, Lazarus and Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. Because this town was situated on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem on the other side, Gethsemane, at the base of the Mount of Olives, was on the way. As Jesus would leave Jerusalem, as he would be making his way home to Bethany, the garden was on the path. This place, this spot, some Jesus loved to go. The word Gethsemane, it means olive press. That's what the word means. Literally, it's the garden of the olive press, which was appropriate considering that the Mount of Olives derived its name from the groves of olive trees up and down its banks. In the Greek, this phrase that Jesus often met there, signified that Jesus, he retreated to this location. It was special to him. Gethsemane was a place where Jesus would go to get away. To get away with his disciples, to get away with his father, before getting back to Bethany for the evening. Now, this is not mentioned by John, but the other gospel authors tell us that Jesus went to this garden this night to do just that, to pray to his Father. Because John is writing years later from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Writing as an old man, late in age, John writes with the assumption that his audience was already familiar with the accounts of the other writers. It's why John excludes so many details that the others record, because why be redundant? You already know this. You're already familiar with this. John gives us the details the others haven't. This whole scene is recorded for us in Matthew 26, Mark 14, as well as Luke 22. So since John writes with the assumption that you and I are familiar with the other accounts, I went ahead, I did the the hard work of harmonizing Uh, these three narratives, so that we would have that complete picture. So let me read it for you. Coming out of the city, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, we're told, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. Then they came to the place, which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray, pray yourselves, that you may not enter into temptation. So Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Jesus said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. 
And Jesus was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he fell to the ground on his face and he prayed, saying, Abba, my Father, all things are possible for you. If it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then Jesus came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, Jesus went away and he prayed. And he spoke the same words. And he returned. And he found them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. Then an angel appeared to Jesus from heaven, strengthening him. Man, wouldn't you have liked a little more commentary on that? What that looked like? That scene? And then we're told being in agony, Jesus prayed a third time more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great droplets of blood falling down to the ground. And when Jesus rose up from prayer and come to his disciples, he found for a third time them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, are you still sleeping and rest? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, in his account, John adds a fresh detail about this garden, about the scene. He tells us in the verses that we just read that Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. A few hours earlier, after being identified and really called out by Jesus, Judas left the upper room, and he went and he joined his co-conspirators. While the religious leaders had longed for an opportunity to arrest Jesus, to have him executed, fearing a riot, they needed a time and a place that they could arrest him apart from the mobs that followed him everywhere. Judas had just the perfect location in mind. Judas knew Jesus. He knew how much Jesus loved to spend time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas knew the spot Jesus loved in the Garden. He knew it was likely. Matter of fact, he'd bank on it, really. That Jesus, after their, their dinner, making his way back to Bethany, Judas is like, I know exactly where he'll be. I know where he'll go. He'll stop by the Garden on his way back. Judas also knew the hour would be late. The city would be quiet. It would be asleep. Jesus would be vulnerable in the open, accompanied by only a few of his closest followers. Yes, indeed, Judas knew the right time and place. Now, before we continue, there is something I, I find personally difficult about that simple sentence that Judas also knew the place. Sure, we understand Jesus' betrayal by Judas was a cowardly, even dastardly act. Judas was vindictive and vengeful. Jesus loved Judas, but his love had not been reciprocated. Jesus had befriended and confided in Judas, but this evil man would ultimately repay that kindness with extreme disloyalty. And yet, while being betrayed by anyone, really, comes with its own fair share of, of pain and grief. What resonates the most to me about this passage is the fact that Judas 
betrays Jesus by using a personal detail that only a trusted friend would have known. The only reason Judas knew of Jesus' fondness of the Garden of Gethsemane Like the only way that Judas would have known the specific place that Jesus was going to visit was because of the intimate nature of their friendship. Judas knew the place for only one reason. Jesus had taken Judas there. And they had spent time with one another. Jesus had opened up his life in a special place to Judas Iscariot. Now, this is not a, a profound point by any means. As a matter of fact, I think you'll, you'll find this relatable. But isn't it true that human relationships in a fallen world are messy? Just generally speaking. And tragically, because of sin, betrayal is part of the typical order. In fact, I'm confident that everyone in this room those with us on the live stream, anyone who might watch later via the video recording or listen to the audio or subscribe to the podcast or hear this on the radio, no matter where you're listening to me utter these words, I'm confident you probably bear the scars of a betrayal. Everyone has. In fact, you've probably been betrayed by someone that you loved and trusted. And we all know that there is nothing worse in the human experience than that moment that you're stabbed in the back by someone you entrusted to have your back. You didn't see it coming. They were supposed to be protecting you. That moment when someone uses a vulnerability necessary for relationship and friendship. When something revealed in confidence ends up being used against you to hurt. It happens, doesn't it? And those moments are painful. Awful even. Now I've found that when that happens, and again, I think you'll find this relatable, our natural tendency is to do what? When we get betrayed by someone we entrusted, our natural reaction is to isolate from people. People stink. That hurts. I'm done. In order to protect from the pain of betrayal, in order to limit the possibility of experiencing that again, what do we do? We isolate. We tighten up our our circle. We restrict even our friends, their insight into our lives. In a sense, what do we do? We erect walls around our hearts, And around our lives, it's just a matter of pure self-preservation. And while it's true that doing such a thing will limit your risk of exposure, of being hurt again, what ends up being yielded in the negative from such an approach is loneliness and a lack of real community. Maybe you're being robbed of both of those things. Maybe you feel lonely and you don't have community because you've been hurt. And you've built up these walls and you're not willing to let anyone in because you're not going to get hurt again. I get that. That's relatable. But there is no escaping 
the fact that vulnerability and therefore the possibility of betrayal is the only way that you can really have an intimate relationship with another person. It's the only way. A real, genuine friend can only exist if that person has the ability to betray you and to hurt you deeply if they so decide. Yeah, it's a risky business. But it's the only way real friendship exists. Here we have Jesus. Not just being betrayed by Judas, but Judas is using a detail only a trusted friend would know. That not just hurt, that hurt deeply. To arrest me in the spot. That's terrible. Jesus opened his life up to Judas. And Judas used those details to betray him. If you've shared such an experience, my challenge to you this morning is, friend, please take your pain and take your disappointment to Jesus because he knows what it feels like to be betrayed. He can sympathize. And know that isolation, all it does is rob you in the end of the relationships that you need and the relationships Jesus will use to provide you that healing. The other quick point that I want to make before we move on is the fact that Jesus, he's clearly orchestrating the events of this evening. Like Jesus knew what Judas was up to. In fact, Jesus knew that the Garden of Gethsemane would be the logical place for Judas' betrayal to occur. And so knowing those things, Jesus intentionally goes to the Garden anyway, and he prays, waiting for Judas to arrive. Well, verse 3. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? Again, as you imagine the scene, picture a quiet tranquil evening the light from the full moon it's working its way down through the canopy of olive trees it's filling this garden with dancing shadows there's a nip in the air it's cool it's early spring there's also just a strange kind of ominous tension that you feel you can feel evil a presence Therefore, your senses are heightened. You're a bit on edge. Now, from the vantage point of being in a garden located at the base of the Mount of Olives, well, you have a vantage point. Jesus, the disciples, if you're there, you can see a commotion from about a mile away. A commotion heading your direction. John tells us that aside from the sanctioned temple officers, commissioned to the chief priests and Pharisees, Judas had also received a detachment of troops, likely from the Roman governor. In the Greek, the word detachment, it's actually a military term. It's an official term. It referenced a tenth part of a Roman legion. Now, historically, we know a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 men, which means that Judas is coming to this garden with 600 soldiers, this is an entourage. Now, again, you can see them coming. 
And as you're watching this large cohort march their way out the east gate, the same east gate that you and Jesus had exited the city an hour or so earlier, you watch them as they come out of the city, this mass, they work their way across the Kidron. They're approaching the garden. They have these lanterns and torches. They have weapons. Matthew tells us specifically that the weapons included clubs and swords. No question, this was quite an incredible show of force. Now, right from the bat, this display, it reveals the fact that Jesus' enemies, (laughs) they really had no idea who they were dealing with. Like, think of it this way. The sheer number of trained soldiers coming to arrest Jesus, the 600 Roman soldiers, the the temple guard, this this whole crew, it demonstrates really a, a misconception, a false belief, you might say, that Jesus was going to fight. As if Jesus was going to initiate a resistance. Secondly, This also reveals to us the the sheer number of soldiers that they didn't understand Jesus' power. Like they thought Jesus would resist, but if Jesus had resisted, you think that was going to work? As if a human army would have the ability to arrest the creator of the universe? Like if Jesus decided, yeah, I'm not going... There was nothing they were going to be able to do about it. And so we had this huge group of people telling us that they don't don't know that Jesus would submit to it. They think Jesus would fight. And then they also don't realize that if Jesus wanted to fight, you could bring a whole legion, the whole Roman army. If Jesus didn't want to be arrested, he wouldn't be arrested. Now, recounting these events with the benefits of hindsight, John tells us, that Jesus, knowing all things that would come upon him, he goes forward and he says to this crew, hey guys, who are you seeking? Now, while Judas might have believed that Jesus had been caught in this moment of vulnerability, I gotcha. Jesus here, he's not caught off guard. Not even in the slightest. Jesus knows everything that's happening and he knows why it's happening. Now, in 50 days from this moment, Peter, who was present, he would make a very interesting observation. I'll I'll read it for you. The scene is directly after Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a massive crowd in Jerusalem. Peter preaches this incredible sermon, but this is something that he says in Acts 2, verses 22 through 24. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, him, and then then notice, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands, have crucified, have put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, according to Peter, Jesus wasn't arrested by anyone. Instead, he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. (laughs) As this posse drew near, John recalls, and I imagine he saw the boldness, the tenacity. It was so counter 
to what you would have expected. Jesus goes and meets them. And since he welcomes them, he went forth. Who are you looking for? Jesus doesn't hide himself. Jesus didn't run away. Instead, he yields. He submits to his destiny. Now, before we look at what happens next, I want to explain why Jesus handles this situation the way that he does. We're going to, we, we, we're going to read something bizarre. Okay, It's going to, going to get strange. The reason it gets strange really boils down to two explanations. So there's two reasons that Jesus handles the situation the way that he does. One, he doesn't want violence breaking out. So, so keep that in mind. He doesn't want things getting out of control and there being chaos. Two, Jesus wants to make sure that his disciples are let go. So he acts deliberately to ensure the safety of his disciples. So let's dive into this. So Jesus says, who are you looking for? In verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. The Lord Jesus in the Hebrew is Yahshua, Joshua. It was a common name in this culture, which is why they have to specify. Hey, yeah, we're looking for Joshua. Yeah, there's a lot of those guys. Can you get more specific? We want Jesus of Nazareth. That was actually his title, mostly. Nazareth. Later, Jesus' disciples would be called Nazarenes. In, in a derogatory sense, because Nazareth, the town, was kind of podunk. Even today, when you see a lot of the persecution happening across the Middle East, ISIS destroying Christian homes and churches. In a derogatory sense, they'll write an N, the letter N, saying that these are Nazarenes, followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Now keep in mind, again, as you're playing the movie out, it's dark. It's dark. They're in a garden. There's a canopy. It's difficult to know who's who. Beyond that, they don't have a poster, a wanted poster, with Jesus' face printed on it. So they're looking for Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, but they don't know what Jesus of Nazareth looks like, at least the majority of them. According to Matthew 26, verse 48, Judas had actually given everyone a sign. He said, whoever I go up to, whoever I kiss, that's Jesus, seize him. Now on a related note, side note, this particular reality that they have to ask, you know, we're looking for Jesus they're asking Jesus that they're looking for Jesus. You know, that tells us that a lot of the artistic misconceptions that Christians have had throughout the millennia of Jesus' physical appearance are way off the mark. Like, for example, like a lot of the common depictions, if Jesus had actually been a foot and a half taller than everyone else, then it would have been really easy. Hey, go to the garden and get the big guy. Wouldn't have had to ask his name. Just go get the tall guy. You'll see him. His head and shoulders above everybody else. Beyond that, if Jesus was a white Swedish man in a Middle Eastern society, that too, he would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah, go to the garden and, and get the Anglo. You'll see him. He's got sunscreen on in the dark. You know, not only that, but it should also be mentioned that Jesus didn't glow in the dark. You know, a lot of the artistic representations of Jesus, he's got this neon glowing halo above him. As if he walked around with a halo. 
Again, it would have been really easy in the garden. Go get the guy glowing. Really easy to find. So they have to ask, hey, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. Okay, that's cool. Jesus of Nazareth, verse 5. So Jesus said to them, this is where things get weird. He says, I am, and then he, he's in the italicized, so he says, I am. And Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also stood with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell down, fell to the ground. (laughs) Again, get yourself in the moment. We have here more than 600 men, professional soldiers, armed to the teeth. They've got torches, lanterns in their hands. They're seeking Jesus. They say, hey, we're looking for Jesus. Jesus replies, I am. He uses emi ego. This great I am statement. He uses the divine name of God. And boom! What happens? Everyone there drew back and fell down. In the Greek, the word fell, it literally means to thrust down in a forceful manner. It's not as though everyone collectively tripped. They were knocked down. They come asking for Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus wants them to know right from the beginning his real identity. Oh, you want to find Jesus of Nazareth? Who you found is the great I am. Oh, you're going to arrest Jesus from... Who you're going to arrest is not a mere mortal. You're coming to arrest the I am that I am. The divine name of God back to Genesis 3. And to substantiate that truth, the declaration itself, these two words, I am, reverberated through the garden. A shockwave went out from his mouth. Jesus said, I am, and those two words knocked everyone to the ground. The power of God is on display. And again, imagine the scene. Jesus says, I am, and all the bodies hit the floor. The sound. What would the sound like? The sound of of the armor, the shields and the swords clanging, falling. The chaos of people trying to desperately keep up their torches and their lanterns. The trepidation and fear on all of their faces as they slowly begin rising to their feet with Jesus still standing there. Again, you have a group of Roman soldiers that are like, what have we gotten ourselves into? Verse 7, so Jesus, he's knocked everyone down, he asks them again, who are you seeking? And they answered, I'm sure this was slow, "Um, Jesus of Nazareth? Like, I'm sure based on what just happened, the Roman soldiers, they're on high alert, right? Again, the scene. They're holding their swords. What's he going to say now? What's going to happen? Now, Jesus, he's keeping himself cool. He's calm. He's collected. He's trying to, to keep this scene from panic and leading out of control and people getting hurt. And so he says, he says I have told you, and I, I, I sense that he probably softened, He says, I am. Again, the he is not there, but also we're not having people knocked down. Therefore, Jesus continues, if you seek me, 
let these, and I'm sure he points to his men, he says, let them go their way. And then John adds a little bit of commentary. He says that the saying might be fulfilled, which Jesus spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And this is a reference to the prayer that Jesus had prayed in the last chapter, specifically verse 12. Now Jesus acknowledges here that he is the man that they're looking for. But he adds, right? If you're seeking me, these guys let them go. Like he's ensuring again that his disciples are allowed to leave, that they're left unharmed. Let's keep this real, guys. Let these guys go. You're only here for me. And honestly, after what just happened, like who's going to argue with him? Matthew 26, verses 49 and 50 tell us that it was likely in this moment that Judas goes up to Jesus and he says, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kisses him. And Jesus replied to Judas, Friend, why have you come? And then Matthew says, They came and they laid hands on Jesus. Now, in response to that activity, verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? And then again, Matthew's account adds that Jesus continued by saying, For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and He will provide me more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? It's interesting, but while every Gospel writer records this event. It's only John who identifies the perpetrator as being Peter. And it's only John that identifies the victim as being Malchus. Now there are some that that use this to substantiate the, the idea that there was a rivalry or a beef between Peter and John and John and Peter. I tend to think there's a more simplistic explanation. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this event during a time in which Peter was still alive. It would have been embarrassing, not just embarrassing, but kind of might place Peter in some legal trouble to record the event identifying Peter. That being said, though, by the time John writes his gospel, Peter has already been crucified. Peter has already been martyred for his faith. So the three early writers leave Peter's name out. No embarrassment. But Peter's now dead. And so John wants to add into the official account, the record, this detail, knowing that no harm or embarrassment could be done. At least that's my theory. As you consider, though, this particular moment. First, Peter's motivation, right? Now, earlier this evening, and in the context of Jesus talking about his coming betrayal, Peter had well, he stood up and he said something bold, right? In John 13, verse 37, you know, Jesus is talking about he's going to be leaving, and there's, he's going to be denied, and he's going to be betrayed. And, and Peter's like, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? You know what? I will lay down my life for your sake. There's no question that as these armed men grab hold of Jesus, that Peter felt a bit of an obligation. I just made a declaration that I'd die for you, and now here's my opportunity. So he jumps into the fray. 
I mean, now for Peter, the plot had become clear. The rat, Judas, exposed. You know, Peter wasn't the only one whose first compulsion that night in this moment was to fight. In Luke chapter 22, verse 49, we, we, we read that when those around Jesus saw what was happening, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now, according to Luke, Peter doesn't wait for Jesus' response. Instead, having a sword, he drew it, struck the high priest's servant, Malchus, cutting off his right ear. Now, we don't know if Peter always carried a sword. I mean, he's a fisherman by trade. We don't know if maybe he procured one that evening, sensing the betrayal was going to happen. He might need it. Maybe even in the chaos of Jesus knocking down all of these soldiers that Peter used the opportunity to pick one off, one of these disoriented men. Regardless, one thing is clear from our text. Peter was not a swordsman. Now, yes, he's willing to go on the attack. They're not going to arrest Jesus. He pulls out his sword. He's going to do this. I'm going to defend him. You know, it's not a very good look that big, bad, brave Peter decides in the moment. He's looking around, and he sees 600 trained Roman soldiers also equipped with swords. He's like, that's probably a bad idea. And he looks at like the temple guard, and he's like, that might also be a bad idea. And so what does big, bad, bold Peter do? He doesn't go after any trained soldier. Instead... He struck the high priest's servant boy. I'm not going to go after those guys or those guys, but oh yeah, that that little guy, I got him. He's going down. Manly Peter, defending Jesus, assaults a servant boy. In fact, to add further injury to insult, he assaults a servant boy, but he misses his head. And only clips off the right ear. One commentator that I respect, he makes this observation about that detail. He says, in a society where almost everyone was right-handed, the fact Peter cut off Malchus's right ear implies he struck him from behind. So he's looking at Malchus. If Malchus is looking straight on, now you can't go across to get the ear. So Peter goes after him. If he's looking at him, he would have cut off the left ear. But if Malchus is looking the opposite direction, so Peter here, he's not going after any of the train guards, any of the soldiers, any of the temple people. He's like, I'm getting that kid, and he don't even know what's coming. He attacks him from behind. John and Matthew, they immediately center their focus on Jesus' swift rebuke of Peter. Again, he's being arrested And he turns to Peter, who just struck a kid from behind, clipping off an ear. He says, Peter, put your sword away. You think I need your help? In this moment, I could pray and have 12 legions of angels. Like, I don't need your help, Peter. But Luke, and maybe it's because Luke was a doctor, he gives us a detail John and Matthew and Mark don't give us. But he says, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, Jesus answered and said, permit even this? Like, what are you doing? And then Jesus touched his ear and healed him. 
that's a moment. Jesus here, being arrested for the sins of the world, going to go to the cross, looks over and has to clean up Peter's mess. Peter, what are you doing? And then he, he, whether he just touches his head and the ear grows back or he picks up the ear and puts it back on, we don't know how it worked, but he heals him, which is crazy. Like, why would Jesus do this? You know what Peter's done? In the moment, aside from like going off script, what has Jesus been very concerned about? He's been very concerned with violence not happening, no one getting hurt, and he's been concerned about his disciples being allowed to leave, right? Hey, hey, you're here to arrest me. Let these guys go. Okay, they start arresting him. Guys, you can go. Peter's the moron that pulls out his swords like, nope, change of plans, Jesus. And what's he done in the process of clipping off Malchus's ear? He's now given the mob a justifiable reason to arrest him. Jesus has worked overtime to make sure he can go. Peter's actions now means arrest that guy. He just tried to kill the servant kid. So what does Jesus do? Yes, there's a moment that he's ministering to Malchus. I think Malchus is included here because people would have known who he was. I think he's a believer. Imagine hearing out of that ear that was cut off. Imagine being friends with Peter after the fact. Like, bro, you're a terrible swordsman, but man, I get this ringing every once in a while, and it's you, buddy. I think Jesus probably reattached the ear because, you know, it's really hard to arrest someone for a crime when there's no evidence. Like, what are they going to Yeah, he, that guy cut his ear off, the right one specifically. And you looked over, and yeah, there's a lot of blood, but that ear looks fine. Jesus protecting Peter even at the end. You know, when you boil it all down, Peter's fundamental problem centered upon the fact his actions were getting in the way of God's plan. Sure, you give him credit. He's noble in his motivations. He wants to protect Jesus. But there's no escaping the reality that his actions here are making a mess of things. You know, we'll continue to see this next Sunday. But Peter's core issue, and don't miss this, but Peter's core issue was this compulsion, this need to prove himself worthy and able to Jesus. Peter wanted to help Jesus when Jesus had been clear he didn't want or need Peter's help. Now here's the application. There are things in your life, works in your life, that only Jesus can do. And he's made it clear. Hey, I want to sanctify you and change you and transform you. I, I'm the only one that can do it. I don't need your help. And what do we do? Oh, we got it, Jesus. And we start pulling out swords, cutting ears off, making a mess of things when we should step back and let Jesus do his thing. Friend, when it comes to things that only Jesus can accomplish, it's best for you to stay out of his way. In Peter's case, this rebuke in the garden was simply the first in a series of difficult lessons He's going to learn in the coming hours. Peter needed to realize that Jesus didn't need his help to accomplish his will. 
Additionally, Peter needed to learn he wasn't worthy. He needed to learn he wasn't able. And more importantly, that Jesus didn't expect either of those. It wasn't about him being able. It wasn't about him being 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 worthy. Peter here is on the highway towards brokenness. We'll see that next Sunday. Well, verse 12, and we'll stop with this verse. We read, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. According to Matthew and Mark, it was at this point that all of the disciples forsook Jesus and fled. Peter and John, they also flee, as we'll see next Sunday. They end up circling back, though, and they follow Jesus at a distance. Now, this detail, that they bound him. Now, that presents a strange picture, to say the least, doesn't it? Like the word bound, it means to tie or to fasten with chains. Jesus is being shackled. Now, in light of the fact that in just a a few minutes earlier, He's just knocked them all down by uttering two words. That exercise of shackling him seems kind of silly. Like it would have made more sense to have gagged him first so he couldn't say anything. But to to bind him in chains as if the almighty God of heaven and earth could be bound by sinful men. And yet... He was. They bound him. You know, as I read this verse, what I find most incredible is not the fact that sinful men were able to bind the God of the universe, but the fact that the God of the universe actually allowed himself to be bound. Chew on that for a minute. It blows my mind. Jesus willingly allowed himself to be placed under the restraints of sinners. He didn't fight them. He didn't resist them. Instead, Jesus submitted to their wishes. The wishes of sinners who bound him, therefore limiting what he could do, as well as restricting where he could go. Do you realize that you actually have the ability to place restraints on the work Jesus can accomplish in your life. (laughs) You can tie His hands. It's not as though Jesus is powerless. Oh, He's more than powerful. The silliness to think that you could shackle Him and that would do anything. But He allowed Himself to be shackled. Yes, Jesus is more than powerful. And yet, here's the truth. If you want to bind Jesus... If you want to limit what he can do, he will not fight against your will and will instead submit to your wishes. I'll just ask, have you bound Jesus? I mean, maybe not entirely. But are there areas in your life you're like, yeah, no. Jesus, you don't have the key there. You know what? I'm going to shackle you from doing anything there. I'm going to restrict your access. In what way? And I'll let the Holy Spirit just take that where it should go. In your life, are you binding Him? Limiting Him? This morning, I just encourage you, set Him free. Abound Jesus 
is silly because it's silly. It's ridiculous. Take the shackles off of him. Remove any restrictions. Loose him. Loose the one you've bound so that he can accomplish his will in you. Now, in closing, I do want to place this scene into kind of the macro perspective of Scripture. Because it's not an accident that Jesus' arrest occurred where? In a garden. You know, back in Genesis chapter 3, the first sinless man stood toe-to-toe with Satan and chose to rebel against the will of God. And when his name was called out in that garden by God the Father, in response, what did Adam do? He ran and he hid in shame. In the end, that dead man ends up being escorted from that garden, Eden, by God, to live in separation of His Creator. But in this garden, we find the second sinless man, Jesus, also standing toe-to-toe with Satan. And yet, in this case, unlike Adam, Jesus chose to surrender to the will of His Father, not rebel. And when His name gets called out by His enemies... Jesus didn't hide himself in shame. Instead, he answered and demonstrated power. The irony is in the end, this righteous man, like Adam, would be escorted from the Garden of Gethsemane. Unlike Adam, he would be escorted by sinners, not God. But he too would be separated. But unlike sinful Adam, the sinless Jesus leaves the garden to die. Why? So that every Adam previously separated might be reconciled with his creator and might ultimately return to the garden he was kicked out of. I find it such a beautiful picture. Jesus in Gethsemane, accomplishing ultimately what Adam failed to do in Eden. So Father, Lord, we'll just kind of let that thought marinate.